guy said, the guy said it ruined his life. Cowbell. It's pretty heavy. He said cowbell ruined his life. Yeah. Good. yeah. Can you imagine? Just, yeah, anytime you go to a restaurant, hey, Chris, I need more cowbell. Uh, it's like that actor from Goodfellas. I don't know his name, but the guy who plays Maury. Uh, yeah, or he, Joe Pesci. The guy who played Maury, you know, if you've seen Goodfellas, he's the oh, guy yeah, who gets yeah. stabbed in the neck in the end. And he's like, everywhere I fucking go, it doesn't fucking matter how many years have passed. They see me and they're like, hey, Maury, did you get the Danish for Bell? Today. <laughs> Today. I guess there's specific personalities. They get parodied a lot. It's all in good fun. But then something goes viral. Mm-hmm. That was before stuff went viral. That was way before. That yeah. was like a walking thing was like all over the place. He did become this parody of himself in a way. Not that he was participating in it, but after like everyone started to do the impressions, I think people forgot. I think we've talked about this, how like actually talking about one of the great actors of all time, like for real. Oh yeah. His work in Deer Hunter is so good. That, Unbelievable. You know, that's the real real thing he really had it yeah um yeah i think he used it maybe you know there was this rumor that he'd do any movie that came his way for a certain amount of money and so he did that movie balls of fury, balls of fury. I, I don't know if that was that situation but he did the movie balls of fury he did he did do um, that envy which actually i thought was um pretty funny but he was doing uh the voice that people think of when they think of Chris Walken. In other movies, he wasn't doing that. Right. You know, intentionally. He was playing a role. So anyway, our guest today is not Chris Walken, <laughs> Christopher Walken, though we'd love to have him on the show. We would love that. And we promise not we to absolutely do Walken in front of Walken because then like the earth will Never. explode. Why would probably. we be terrified to do that? He probably hates that shit too. <laughs> yeah. Our guest on the show today is Tom Bauer, who's been in every name a few <laughs> TV, Kojak, Miami Vice, Hill Street Blues, Dallas, X Files, Roswell, The West Wing, Law and Order, Battlestar Galactica, film. All right, wait, let me go. Let me see how many I can name yeah, yeah. from memory. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to do this in order. Um, <laughs> the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, Out of the Furnace. Yep. Die Hard 2, The Badge. River's Edge, American Me, Raising Kane, Nixon, The Negotiator, Pollock. I mean... Full disclosure, Raul was reading from an index card right now. No, all from memory. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You said it very well. You said, I've been watching this guy my entire life. And we met him in our teacher Jack's class. He's a great guy. And then we start going back and watching all these movies. We were like, oh, yeah. And this is like the first time that that's ever happened to me in this show and researching actors. Because usually, you know, like like you've said, you know, you you know their work. But at the same time, doing the show allows you to discover things that are sort of hidden gems that you, you wouldn't ordinarily have seen or that maybe you didn't get a chance to see. Oh, yeah. But with Tom, it was different. It was it was rewatching a lot of films that I'd grown up with, like Raising Cain and, and Die Hard 2 and The River's Edge, which I've seen probably 30 times. And just really, oh my God, he's been he's done so much great work. And you've been watching him since you were a little kid. And he's a wonderful actor. He's one of those guys who's like always going to be the most relaxed person on screen. Oh, most yeah. Likely. And doesn't I, push, doesn't try too hard. No. Doesn't have to. Yeah. No. I was watching a scene with him. We didn't get to talk about this. I, I watched a scene from Out of the Furnace, which uh, is a film directed by uh, Scott Cooper, that at the end of the film, when he's sort of facing off with Woody Harrelson's character and he's about to die, the fear. I mean, just watch that scene for the fear that he's that he's uh, portraying. And it's, it's like, I don't know. I find that to be one of the hardest things as an actor to, um, fear? to generate. Like real fear. Real fear, real yeah. Fear. I have the same problem with laughter, but I also have it with fear. Just how do you, how do you get it? How do you sustain it in a way that's got to put real bullets in the gun? Like in out and in, in uh, speaking of Christopher Walken, in uh, no uh, at close range, at yeah. close range, yeah. You don't get to do that anymore. I don't think they'll be. <laughs> I don't think upon. you're allowed to do that, I, and I don't think he really put real bullets in that gun. I think, think that's a. I think that's a rumor, or he made him believe that maybe. He, I mean, look. Christopher Walken's an actor. He'd been working a long time by then. 
he knew nobody was going to let him put bullets in that. I love that scene so much. <laughs> Could I say, I got feelings for you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Christopher Walken. We None do at all. any any impression or uh, is is out of love. Imitation is the highest form of flattery in our case. You said it, pal. If we do the walk-in. But yeah, Tom Bauer. Tom Bauer. Enjoy. I, I think you don't choose a career. I think a career chooses you as to how it's going to go, where you go, what kind of work you do. And you just slip into things. There's some really good actors that just kind of got lost, like John Savage and Jimmy Russo. They're around, they work, but they're not doing the kind of work they should have done. Yeah, John Savage, always wondered about him. He's amazing he works, works in all the, the Deer time. Hunter. Yeah. Um, everything he does, he's amazing. And, I've seen him. and you never see what he does, you know. It goes somewhere. I don't know where it goes. Yeah, how he got that performance in The Thin Red Line, which we rewatched recently. He's out of his mind in yeah. the most beautiful way. He can <laughs> He can be great. Yeah. So you clearly got your start like many great actors in the in the theater. That's yeah. You, yeah. And actually your first yeah. TV or, or film role was in was a play, right? It was Incident at Vichy. That was the first job. That's where I met Barry. Right. And yeah, Barry some Primus. great actors, uh, Alan Garfield, Andy Robinson, Rene Abergenois, mm. uh Harris Eulin. Wonderful actor. Hollywood Television Theater, which Norman Lloyd produced, was two weeks of rehearsal, as you would a play, then a week of blocking for camera and, and sound. The sound was really pristine. You know, it was locational area sound miking uh, so that the sound was really great so that you could perform it as a play. I think we had three cameras, maybe four. Stacy Keach directed, a theater guy. And uh, most of the actors in the play were theater people. Stacy told me that he cast me because he had never seen anybody that nervous in an audition. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's one way of getting a job, I guess. Oh, yeah. you know? I mean, it's a great play. I had... Ten entrances and nine exits and one line, I think. <laughs> you know, I had just come from doing a play with Al Pacino in Boston, so it wasn't like I was starstruck. But it was just a great group to, to be with for a month. At the time, I was still doing three or four equity waiver plays a year. And Ed Harris was doing the same thing. He hadn't yet really been discovered. I mean, people knew about him, but he had, he wasn't working on film and TV at that time. He was doing three or four plays, equity waiver plays a year. And in one of the plays I did, Chicago Conspiracy Trial, he was living with one of our actresses, Robin Ginsburg, and they did a great production of Cowboy Mouth. So we were doing that kind of work, you know, and at that time, casting directors would come to see plays. Top drawer critics would review front page in the art section of the L.A. Times. I mean, people took that kind of theater seriously. And the Little Met Theater, 46 seat theater, won all the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Awards uh, against the big theaters downtown. Gammon was the guy in front of it. He and James Timothy Gammon. Scott, who yeah. was also brilliant. The good actor, Timothy yeah. had done as much work as, as Gammon at that time. And together they ran that theater. They did a complete cycle of William Inge plays. Uh, I produced Loss of Roses. And uh, we, we had to choose between Brian Kerwin and Dennis Quaid. We took Brian Kerwin. Neither one of them had been discovered. And Catherine Butterfield, who was Paul Butterfield's wife, was in it. 
I can't remember anyone else that was in it, but it was a great production. And I complete I financed that because by that time I was on the Waltons and making big money, twelve hundred bucks a week, you know. <laughs> asked for a raise and they sent me to uh Pearl Harbor. You ask for a raise, they kill you or send you to Pearl Harbor. Oh, they <laughs> I should have waited until after Pearl Harbor to ask for the raise. Then they brought the character back and wanted me to play the character being washed up on shore after I had been considered dead and lost and missing. I'm washed up on the shore. I asked for the raise again. They, they cast a different actor Whoa. as wow. the character. Wow. <laughs> so, TV, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was using that money to help finance uh, plays at the Met Theater. Yeah. Don't you think actors, we all have this sort of dream of like if i can get some some tv work some good you know popular film work then i can use then i can use the money to do the projects that i want to do i still we had a great workshop at the new met theater the one on oxford and santa monica we had a great workshop angelina jolie was in it before she started working lucy lou was in it before she started working and our moderator was Candy Trebuca, who had been Ed Namey's acting coach, had also been Harvey Keitel's acting coach, um, actor studio member. Um, she had the kind of rep that Sandra Seek had. And they wanted uh, Sandra to become the permanent artistic director of the actor's studio, but she likes to float. She goes all over the world like, uh, like Walter. And Candy, much the same, and she's brilliant. And so she was the moderator of the workshop. So it's always been my dream still to buy that space because it was a really funky space. People would come from New York and say, I'm home, you know, come down to the barrio, you know, of the Guatemalan barrio and a real place. And they took care of us during the riots. Buildings were burning all around us, and the neighborhood protected that theater. I yeah. produced one of the, well, the first show, which was uh, called Spec, and Gammon and Brian James and uh, Dennis Haysbert and, uh, oh, God, I wish I could remember this really wacko guy who does all these horror films, but he was Tobin Bell. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's all. Yeah. 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 The, all these guys in the first play, and it was great. Then I produced Ed Harris's play, Sam, uh, uh, Murray Mednick's play about Sam Shepard, because they had had a lifelong relationship and it had fallen apart. And Murray wrote a play that was very critical of Sam, but Ed played that role and he was fantastic. And he dies in the play and you watch him die. Wow. He dies by choice, you know, uh, gets on a real Zen trip and shows you his death on stage. The process of dying by choice, which is just spooky every night. <laughs> you know, we burn sage before every performance. And that the ending of that play was none of the other actors could come up to his performance. We couldn't cast actors good enough to yeah. you know to really fulfill the entire play but ed was enough yeah he's a great stage actor oh, i boy. saw him in a one-man show at the public theater called uh, rex um yeah by, i think that was written by neil labute they also mentioned the great actor james gammon oh, who boy. you were in a film called the ballad of gregorio cortez yes, with yes. a lot of great actors in that movie yes um Directed by Robert M. Young. Yes. Very interesting director. Uh, someone who I've, you know, I knew, I knew Short Eyes because I've always yeah, been a yeah. fan of that. Uh, but, you know, discovering his other uh, work, a very interesting director, always works with great actors. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Edward James Olmos uh, especially uh, uses, you know, uh, works with him a lot and produced 
American Me, which uh, Eddie directed. Yeah. Did camera operate? Huh? Didn't he operate the camera on that too? Did I see that? Yeah. Well, he was a great camera operator. He did uh, the camera on Nothing But, uh, Nothing but a Man mm. with Michael Romer and a documentary about the mafia in Palermo, uh, Cortilla Cuccino. Eddie and I are, well, we, we met Bob. Well, Eddie knew Bob. And we all met at Sundance from day one, 1981, is where we came together and Moctezuma Esparza had the script and he had a million three and didn't know what to do with it and told Eddie to run with it. Eddie took me on as a partner. After we left Sundance, we went to his house at, in Encino and cast the play amongst our friends. There was only one guy that we didn't know personally and had worked with, hadn't worked with personally. That was Bruce McGill. The casting director only had one actor to fulfill. On my side, it was Gammon and Tim Scott and Alan Bint from uh, Eddie's experience. Well, we both knew Brian James. I'd done a production of the basic training of Pavel Hummel with Brian, with, with, with David Provell, playing the role that Al played in Boston and on Broadway. He played Hummel. And so we worked with Brian, who is great, fantastic. Um, Rosanna DeSoto with the scene in the jail. And um, Barry Corbin, who played one of, one of the lawyers. And then I knew Jack Kehoe and brought him on. So it was all, we're just doing this in Eddie's backyard. And then Eddie says, why don't we get Bob to direct it? Because he had done all Brista with him. So Bob came on. And then we, we said, let's get Michael Hausman to produce it because they had worked together, uh, Bob and Michael. So we were up and running. And after June at Sundance, we were up and running in late October down in New Mexico. We shot it October, November, and uh, we went to Texas to be in the jailhouse where Cortez was uh, incarcerated. And we did the courtroom in the courtroom where he was tried. Wow, really? That it was, was that amazing. Was where that happened. Wow. And we, we had 40 pages of a script that Bob had rewritten. And the night before every scene, we would write the scene for the following day from transcripts, from descendants' testimonies, um, from newspaper accounts. We would write a new scene every, every night before the day we shot. It was alive. And so now Eddie and I are putting together a retrospective for Bob, who just turned uh, 95 Friday. We had a little birthday dinner for him Saturday night at the Little Door. And he's really kind of out. Of, he's had three brain bleeds, and yet he's still pretty strong, and he knows what he's thinking, but he can't get it out, you know, the words are scrambled and it's funny and he gets the humor of it, you know, uh, but he also gets very frustrated, but he's kind of, he's got two films he wants to make. One is called uh, in a little Spanish town that includes 17 songs that his uncle wrote songs that everybody knows, like sunny side of the street and, you know, how are you going to keep him down on the farm? All these old songs. <laughs> they're they're going to, yeah, his uncle, Joe Young. Um, they're incorporated in the script. They're part of the script to, you know, further the story. They're not just songs out of nowhere. They, they are a pathway to the next scene. So Eddie's raising the money. And another guy that had been in American Me, um, Wilcox is his last name. I'm trying to remember his first name. He's from Venezuela, and supposedly he's coming back with a million dollars for the two million to make this movie that Eddie will have to shadow Bob. 
in the direction, just as Bob shadowed Eddie when he directed a Miami Vice and American Me. So, but we're we're going to do a retrospective at uh, Lincoln Center with Alambrista, the Ballad of Gregorio Cortez, uh, Human Air, which I did with uh, Xander Berkeley and uh, Bobby Knott. And that's the reason for the retrospective, because Bob wanted to see that movie get out. It had been locked up in probate when one of the partners died, and he just got it back. And he's made us equal owners in it so that we're all have the incentive to do whatever we can. We're doing, Eddie arranged for us to do it in Lincoln Center in February and at the Academy after the Academy Awards, either the Academy or AFI or DGA. And the other two movies will probably be Caught and uh, Dominic and Eugene. I love that film. Yeah. It's, it's the thing, but I didn't know who Robert M. Young was until I started researching you. And then I realized I've known who he is for years because I've seen everything. I saw One Trick Pony. I saw Extremities yeah. a lot of times. Rich Kids yeah. and uh, One Trick Pony, which he did with Paul Simon and didn't have a good time on it. But I like the film still. See, I saw that movie when I was very young because yeah. I was very upset with Paul Simon. At the yeah. Time, oh, yeah. When I was about five, six years old, I was yeah. I was terminally in love with Carrie Fisher, as most young men were oh, yeah. age at that time. Yeah. And I was like five or six, maybe five, when I saw in the newspaper one morning. I was like, Carrie Fisher weds Paul. I'm like, jump out of my. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. So I asked my mom, I'm like, who is this guy? She's like, oh, and she tells me. <laughs> you know, needless to say, I'm like, I got to get on this right away. I wrote a letter to oh, Carrie yeah. Fisher, and um, proposing. And that was just, I was sincere. I was like deeply sincere. And I gave it to my grandfather. He was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get this, this letter to her right away. Your proposal is going to be considered, you know, all this. And then, uh, I don't think he actually sent the letter, but a couple uh, weeks later I got an autograph in a frame personalized to me from Carrie Fisher. So it all, and then shortly thereafter they got divorced. So something worked, right. something worked. Right. Yeah, I wonder if I had something you to do did with it. Affected yeah. Great, I'll have to, t- have to tell way. Bob about that. You know, I'm sure he'll be thrilled. He'll get a big <laughs> kick out of that. But you know, he's still very much with us, but uh, fragile. Yeah, and his documentaries are amazing. That he did with the Eskimos. He lived with the Inuit. He did the Maasai warriors. I'll watch anything well, he's done at this point. I mean, yeah. I was so blown yeah. away by Gregorio Cortez. I mean, especially the way it looked. It was shot by the great uh, Ray Villalobos, who's yes. DP I've admired Home for Smokey Joe, Smoke, Smokey Ray. That's what I was I was yeah. watching. I'm like, this is the closest thing to McCabe, McCabe that I've seen. Yeah, it was. It was very much so. And uh, Eddie and I walked that movie around the world for a couple of years before it got picked up by Embassy Pictures. Norman Lear, Jerry Parencio's company. Hmm. But we were four-walling it everywhere we could go. And we took over the music hall, which was one theater at the time, and would fill it up every Saturday morning, nine Saturdays in a row. And uh, one of Charles Chaplin's, who was a head film critic at the LA Times, had a class at uh, USC and one of his students saw the film at the music hall, told Chaplin about it. They showed it at USC and Chaplin wrote about it and then and went to Norman Lear's house and uh, surprised Norman with all of us there as an audience. And Carl Reiner is there and we watched the movie and after the movie, Reiner leans over to Norman and says, congratulations on your new movie. <laughs> <laughs> Norman bought it, and he brought us inside, Eddie and I, and Bob, to help marketing, advertising, publicity, distribution. And we were there till we opened in August at the Four Star Theater in San Francisco, went through the roof there. And every place where we could get out ahead of the film, you know, and do our thing with crowd gathering, um, we were successful, but then we were doing so well, they got greedy and started going out ahead of us and competing with Superman 3 and uh, Rocky 4. And, you know, we got lost in that. So 
They got tired of it and gave it back to us, but let us stay in-house, and we sub-distributed until Eddie got Miami Vice. We were never going to give up. I love everyone in this film. Like These are just some of the best yeah. actors, yourself included. I mean, incredible. That table scene at the end, toward the end. Yeah. All you guys are. Uh, oh, the poker like the scene. Picnic scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was just fly by the seat of your pants yeah. kind of just having great fun. Meanwhile, there's a lynching about to happen. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And, and Ned, even Ned, Ned Beatty, Beatty shows the head of the lynching <laughs> Ned mob. Ned Beatty shows us <laughs> the head of the lynch mob. Yeah. Amazing. As yes. a favor to Bob, you know, they had worked together or favored Eddie, I'm not sure which, or favored Vila was. I don't know how he got there, but he was there for a day and did, did his thing. Then, 35 years later, the Academy just decided to do a restoration of a, a Super 16 film to a beautiful 35-millimeter print, and they gave us a gala for 1,500 people at the Academy. Oh, wow. Awesome. I'd love to see that print. Now we have it back, and we have had some other screenings in, in various places. You know, it pops up every once in a while, and it's uh, available with the whole new kind of uh, logo on Amazon. So it has a life, you know. You should screen it at the New Beverly. You should do like a McCabe and, yeah, and Gregorio Cortez Yeah, that would block. be a good thing if we could get Quentin to do that. It'd be a good, yeah. be a good idea. It's a great movie and very um, relevant, I think, to, to yeah. today. Well, that's how we really caught on with the film because of it, the racial issues, bilingual, education, uh, jurisprudence, you know, the inequality of, of jurisprudence if you don't have the money to get a great lawyer, although Eddie had a great lawyer and and Barry Corbin, you know. It's the best acting I've seen. For, I mean, he's someone I've always really admired. Really good, really uh, good. That speech at the end. You know, the, the reason he was passionate about it is because his father was a lawyer. And he always wanted to be a lawyer, but ended up being an actor. Yeah. And never got to fulfill that that passion. This is how I feel, So too. he got to do it I in feel the, the exact same way, actually. Yeah. I totally relate to that. Yeah. But you see it. I mean, it's very personal. Yeah. What, he's, what he's saying. I feel the movies we make that we have to carry around ourselves for wall or festivals that we see multiple times with audiences is like live theater. Yeah. It's just like live theater. You're in the audience. I watch it every time. I'm feeling the heartbeat of the audience, you know? And you, it's electric. You very, you feel very much as though you're performing in live theater. And so it's a different show every night. I never get tired of that because it's a different audience every time. If you ever have projected, let, let us know. I'd love to come see it. I think you would too. Yeah, well, oh, yeah. yeah. Would love yes. to go see it in the theater. You know, and now it's the same thing with Senior Love Triangle. It has an amazing effect on audiences. It's about real people. It's to, adapted from a photojournalistic documentary internationally acclaimed for Time magazine. And she adapted her own screenplay, which her former boyfriend directed. And it's a fantastic edit. He went to Paris to work with an editor in Paris for 10 weeks and what he came back with. And when it's screened with the DCP uh, system, there, there is a, an effect on an audience uh, unequaled to anything I've done in a long time. Yeah, I wanted to talk about, a little bit about that movie because unfortunately, though we didn't get to see it because I don't believe it's it's uh, been released yet. No, right? and we're just waiting for other festivals or other screening opportunities, but it's got to be with the DCP because we did it downtown as part of the New Filmmakers Award, which was a nice award to have. It's backed by the Academy itself and by the Writers Guild and... So it was a great uh, 
award, but the system was lousy, you know, and I agonized sitting there watching it. Yeah, well, I'm very interested in this in the fact that, you know, it's a it's a director who's probably in his uh, 30s. Yeah. Or 20s or 30s i don't know but he's um former rhythm and blues recording star oh no kidding yeah i didn't know that singing oh. with a group and then he created a, a vocal uh, uh character uh, a theme album wow well yeah he's you know it's just why can't you tell a story a love story about um people who are older right. and at that stage in their life they're still falling in love. They're still uh, yeah. hooking up the whole thing. Yeah. You know, why, why not tell that story and the way it's filmed and the way it's done looks really interesting. So and it's it funny. Forward. Yeah. We won four dramatic best dramas in a row, but we won best comedy oh, wow. in another, because it has that kind of ironic humor about it. You know, the, People are funny in this situation. And I stopped looking at myself after this many screenings. You know, I'm looking at other people that existed. And at the end, you see the still photos of the real people. Wow. And it's shocking to people who are seeing it for the first time. Well, it's about three elderly people living in assisted living homes and my character getting kicked out and moving in and being thrown out and thrown in mental institutions and thrown in jail. And what really happened to these people? Yeah. It's a love triangle of these three older people. That sounds great. The trailer looked terrific. That was all we were able to see. Yeah. But it's, it's an amazing film. Then we have the other, I've got the other small film that was at dances with films when your film was there. And uh, before I saw our film for the first time, I watched your film and liked it a great deal. Oh, thanks, man. I really, I liked how the people behaved in that film. It was really good. Thank you. I'm doing the feature next. That's how you go with it. I've got, I produced a movie, Neither Wolf Nor Dog, that Stephen Lewis Simpson has been out on the road with for two and a half years now. And doing just fine, you nice. know. Never, He never wanted to do that. I wanted him to do that before he ever made the film. Because I gathered he would have a difficult time. And did as far as being discovered in the big festivals. It just doesn't happen for many people. You know, and, and, and it's so rigged now that it's mostly big name at Sundance, mm -hmm. there's some great festivals outside of Sundance and, and Berlin. Yeah. You know, there's still some great places to go. Denver, Syracuse, and, uh, well, some of the places you've been to. Yeah. And some ones. of the places we've been to, Breckenridge, where the town is the festival and the festival is the town. See, that's what I love. Those are the, it's like, Mill uh, Valley, Telluride. You've been to Tallgrass in Wichita? No, haven't been. They're phenomenal. Yeah. It's like, it's what you're talking about. The whole town. When did they go? October. We should resubmit. We yeah. should submit if they hadn't already. Yeah. They're great. They're Tallgrass, all cinephiles. Yeah. It's very hospitable, like the yeah. nicest people on the planet. And they just, they know film, they love film and they treat you really good. Yeah. Niagara was kind of a bust and um, there have been some busts, you know, but you go. It's something that comes out of all of them. Yeah. 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 Mentioned Agreed. being a pioneer at some of these early festivals. And uh, you also uh, did, I wouldn't call it a made for TV movie because it was HBO called Against the Wall. And yeah. I, that was, you know, now uh, some films will go straight to Netflix, straight to Amazon. You know, they try to get them in the theaters for a little bit, but like uh, HBO was doing that in the 90s as well. I made several movies that were just, they could have come out in the theaters, but they were for HBO. Yeah, and so that was Laramie one of them. Project. Being Absolutely, Moises Kaufman, the director I uh, and great actors with. all assembled in Laramie. Yeah. You know, and I was able to go to where this crucifixion took place. I know I was there, even though they had taken down all the signposts. The aura was 
so definite, you know, yeah, in my well. mind. And then I got to meet the priest who kind of kept the town together, you know, when it was really at great odds. That had real meaning, that film. And we opened the Sundance Film Festival with that film. But Against the Wall, that was very special because Sam Jackson hadn't done that much at that time. And Clarence Williams came back from out of nowhere, you know, from Mod Squad. Uh, and he, he was brilliant. He was great in that. Yeah, Everybody in it, you know, Frankenheimer, Freddie Forrest. Right, yeah. One of my favorite actors. Yeah, directed by John Frankenheimer, yes. Freddie Forrest, Kyle MacLachlan, Samuel Jackson. Yeah. You had a great Harry scene. Harry Dean. Harry Dean, you got to got sing to play with brothers Harry Dean. And we got to sing together. <laughs> and, know. you know, Harry yeah. Dean, after that, I met Harry Dean a hundred times at uh, at Ago, and every time Paulie Herman would have to introduce yeah. us. Harry, here's your brother. Say hello to your brother. Huh? Oh, who's who's that? Who are you? What, what's your name? Tom Bauer. Tom Bauer. And Paulie would say, he played your brother and against the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I played poker with Harry Dean. Wow. He, he never knew me. I'm a, I'm a very, uh, I'm a big admirer of uh, the films of Werner Herzog. And I know you were in Bad Lieutenant, yeah. Port of Call, New Orleans, with Nicolas Cage and Ava Mendez, um, a lot of good actors in that. Uh, I just wanted to know, what was it like being directed by Werner Herzog and being on set with him? Because you have some really great scenes with uh, Nicolas Cage. In I had heard about Werner from John Ford Noonan, who passed this past year. One of my favorite playwrights I had produced several John Ford Noonan plays, including, and I had worked on one directing Angelina Jolie and an actress named Maureen Byrne, music from down the hill about Woodstock, but these women in a mental institution up the hill from music down the hill at Woodstock. And John Ford Noonan had written that play, but he told me a story once about Werner after, um, where's the, what's the movie that the people were killed uh, pushing the train up the hill and then Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, yeah. Yes, and, and uh, the great uh, documentary filmmaker made uh, The Making of The Making of, yeah, yeah. The, the Burden of Dreams. Burden of Dreams. Les Blank? Les Blank. Yeah, Les Blank. Yeah. So I knew that about Werner to begin with, had read that whole story about the making of Fitzcarraldo and then John Ford Noonan telling me the story about Werner calling him up one day and said, meet me in, meet me at the Holland Tunnel. We're walking to Pittsburgh. And Werner did it, you know. And then, of course, I saw the, the documentary where he, he commandeered a film crew and made a movie about the burning fields of Kuwait. I auditioned for on tape with uh, Joanna Ray, casting director, and then Werner came to have me audition again. He's 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 an intimidating guy to meet and talk to, but the minute he hires you, he is very nurturing of his actors. He's he's a wonderful human being with his actors. And for me, it's Nick Cage's best performance. He's Richard III in this. Yeah, exactly. He is brilliant. And and Avi Lerner fucked it up in the distribution and never got the kind of distribution it should have had. And I wondered about that because it had the famous title already. I mean, not yeah. the, the first bad, and it's not a secret. It's no, not a it's sequel not a to sequel Bad Lieutenant. All. The Harvey Keitel movie directed by Abel Ferrara. Also an awesome movie. Yes. Very different. It, they're, totally. they're two totally different movies. They just yeah. happen to have the same name. Uh, but that movie had been out there. Yeah. I knew it when I heard Werner Herzog directing a movie called Bad Lieutenant in New Orleans. I said, I'm definitely going to go see this yeah. and tell everybody about it. And yeah, and, and it kind of uh, didn't... I don't know, actually, how... It did box office. I think it was 
Not yeah. much. But yeah, I mean, um, it's, we, it's a really good movie with great performance. Excellent. You know, it, it didn't even play that many festivals, but it played Montreal and won Best Picture and, and, and Nick won Best Actor. But it didn't have exposure in many places like that. We did a premiere here at, for AFI, and that was a big thing. But uh, Avi Lerner really didn't have a distribution system for a quality film. Uh, in one of the films where um, Nick's character is being given a, uh, an award, and he's fucked up, you know, Nick is. Yeah. And I'm there as his father, and his wife is there, and his mother and um, Werner wants to get a particular kind of an effect supernatural thing with an iguana and the iguana latches on to, Oh, sorry, to his fist won't let go. And Werner won't let go. He doesn't want to fuck up the scene. He lets the iguana grip him like this until the scene was over. Really fucked up his wrist, you know, or his fingers. But he didn't care. He had to get the shot. <laughs> That's the kind of kind of insane things that happen when you're working with Werner, but he, he's very nurturing to his actors. That's the right actor for that. I mean, this yeah. is the guy who swallowed a live cockroach yeah. in a movie. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he, he, he's capable of doing almost anything. When you come down on the whole um, director using fear as a tool with actors, like, is it like a case-by-case case thing? Like Kazan, I think he, Kazan did it effectively and was kind of brutal. Yeah. About it, you know, like the little kid in Waterfront. He he said something, your dog died or something like that, you know. <laughs> well, he was manipulative. I mean, yeah. Barry talked yeah. about that, too, on one of the episodes. Like, he was manipulative. And yeah. he would say, hey, he would, he would like pit actors in the cast against each other. And this guy said this about you. And I get that in a way. I mean, that's old school. And yeah. I don't know who would do that. And that. I mean, I'm sure some people do. But I'm talking about like, you know, what you were saying about Stone or Herzog being this. I'm the director. I'm this sort of intimidating figure, which I mean, like Herzog doesn't do that once he's cast you. But being like some some directors, I feel they from experience, from their philosophy about it, you know, they think they've got to be this. Uh, intimidating force and they use fear as a tool to of control over actors. Frankenheimer was a terrible bully. The first I, time I worked with him, not towards me, but he, he would spot somebody or sense somebody who was vulnerable and just knock the shit out of him, you know? Um, Emotionally, verbally, uh, I did a movie with him called 9944 100% Pure or something like that uh, with Richard uh, Harris and uh, Michael Caine, I think it was. In, I had nothing to do in it, but I just watched him bully uh, one of the characters. And then... 25, 30 years later, I worked with him against the wall. He was great. Yeah. He had mellowed, you know, and he was wonderful to work with. He cooked for us, you know, and took care of us in every way. Um, I think that I think that Oliver still maintains that overlord kind of thing about him where you know, he's the boss and you don't want to get out of line. You know, he really, he's, he's an enforcer. And I'm trying to think of how many other people are like that. Not many, because most people do it, you know, with the kind of nurturing quality. Ed, Ed can get really scary. You know, if he thinks things are quieting down or getting dull, he'd just smash a window, you know, with his fist, you know, just to get everybody's attention. You know, let's get the intensity back. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? 
I guess, yeah, it's sort of like it. I, I know, and all those guys, I, I, I don't, you know, they have their methods, and I guess they work because they're all really good uh, directors. But like, I find as an actor, that doesn't work for me at all. Like, if you expect to intimidate me into a performance, it's never going to happen. You should fire me on the spot because yeah. I'll give them, I'll give a director everything, I'll give a production everything I've got. And, but as soon as it crosses that line into now I gotta, now I gotta scare you to get an emotional reaction. Goosey. It's like, like the, uh, like the, the Friedkin story about slapping the oh, priest. He's, he's, <laughs> from what I hear, he is really, in Slap fact, one audition I had with him was a horror story. I don't even remember what happened. I just remember it was horrible. You Did know. you hear that story about the exorcist? How he got the performance from, he used real priests in the film. You know the story. And he was, um, he, he sort of integrated them with um, Max von Sydow and Jason Miller's characters. And he found real priests in Washington, Georgetown. And they're shooting the final, I read this in his book. They're shooting the final scene of the film where um, Karis has already jumped out the window and died. And the priests go back to the site where he died. And the priest has to get very emotional and it's starting to rain. And they're like running out of film. And uh, he's not doing it. And Friedkin, you know, walks up to the priest and he's like, you know, I need you to give me a little more. And, you know, this is the situation. And he does it and it's not working. And then he goes up to the priest and he's like, do you trust me, father? He's like, I trust you, Billy. He's like, I love you, father. He's like, I love you too, Billy. And he slaps him. He says, action. <laughs> he cries right on camera. No, I know he's capable of that because Joey Cortese, who worked with him on Cat Squad, hmm. he's got some amazing stories about uh, Friedkin. Now, Moresco works with Friedkin on some scripts. They're writing some scripts together, some television shows. So he's very close with Friedkin, you know? Yeah, sure, Dan. I hope he I hope he continues to work and keeps making movies because he's a great director. And uh, yeah, I mean, if that story about the priest is true, that's crazy. It worked. It worked. I'm just saying, like, for me, don't don't come at me with that. Look, I'd never slap anyone. I would never. never (laughs) And you're not going to be able to slap a priest today. But I don't think what he like, I think what he's what he did, at least back then, was called goosing rather than, you know, manipulating or or just being a bully. And I think there's a fine line. Like, I'm not saying it's okay to slap an actor. I just want that on the record. But I do understand what he was going for at the time and why he did it. I don't think that makes him a bully. I think that there, there really is a fine line between what you're talking about, like with stone, which is kind of surprising to me that you, why would you bully someone in the audition? That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. I don't you know? know his reason. What's the, what the motivation was? Well, I guess he was testing people to see how much they could take, you know? Yeah. And he didn't use that kind of force or manipulation, uh, on the set, to my knowledge. That's you know? strange. See, yeah. I can understand why Hitchcock would turn on the cold water before the shower scene all of a sudden. You know what I mean? Just to give a little he, extra oomph. He wanted Billy Devane to spray his teeth so they wouldn't shine so much. <laughs> he had, his, they glittered, you know, and he would wanted him to take his teeth down some, <laughs> which Billy wouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> the best direction for me is the director that asks questions, just keep asking questions until he gets what you come up with, you know, that you have to dig deep to know that you've arrived at certain ideas and possibilities that are, are even better than what that director might have thought of. Right. Let him dig. Let him get you to dig. You know, and I've had directors that have done that. Now, Bobby Duvall doesn't like to rehearse. Duvall, he hated rehearsal. He wouldn't rehearse. Hated rehearsal. But I wonder if he ever had a really good director early on who would just ask him questions. He thinks that you use all of your fresh ideas in in a rehearsal. He doesn't want to waste those. But a great director will keep keep you fresh. 
I worked with this Louis Pepe at Sundance, and we rehearsed for eight hours and never asked the same question twice. Dug so deep for those characters and those, those, those scenes that worked. I was with him for three months on the light ship in Germany on the high seas and then in Munich where things were settled down. But there, we had a mutiny on the, on the high seas uh, against Jerzy Skolomowski. And in particular, everybody wanted to kill uh, uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer. You know, everybody loved him as when we began, and it was Duval. It was the strangest thing. Duval was um, had casting approval, and Klaus Maria Brandauer had script approval, even though he had never done an English language movie before. <laughs> and Jerzy Skolomowski, Polish director, came completely unprepared. We didn't have a script. A continuity supervisor didn't have a script supervisor. We were shooting from five different scripts of three different script screenwriters. It was a mess, you know. And uh, Duval was doing kind of an impersonation between uh, William, uh, who's a great conservator, William F. Buckley, William F. Buckley, and and Truman Capote. He was doing kind of a cross between the two of them. And I don't know what Brandauer was doing, but he got the other six American actors pissed off enough to want to throw him overboard, you know. And I was the intermediary. I was kind of keeping as much peace as possible. Yeah, I totally get that, that you don't want to waste the, the juice, you know, in, in, the, in the rehearsal. I understand that even though I kind of get that anybody who's done a lot of theater knows uh, you can repeat it. That's yeah. The, that's yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. But I get the, you know, your spontaneity. If it's a film, um, it's, it's got to be very vivid and, and it's there. And I guess it is kind of like a, a, like every production is kind of like a ship in a way. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I guess that's why directors kind of want to, some some feel they need to be intimidating to keep the crew. They got to keep control. Yeah, you know, yeah. every day they have to set the tone. I, the director's job is just beyond me because every day, I mean, it's a burnout for a director. Lonely. For every film, yes, got to be lonely. You've got to set the tone and and ignite the energy. And keep the control uh, because as a producer uh, who helps maybe get the money and helps with the script and helps with a lot of things, my job as a producer is to keep peace on the set because one bad apple can screw up the whole thing and the director may not even know what's going on. I think being a director is the closest thing to being a priest. <laughs> that's my, that's what's my takeaway for the, for the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's because you have to represent the world in yeah. a way and you have to forgive everyone and you have to listen. And that's the big part of directing that. And I find it to be a very lonely job. It is, you know, and it's entirely probably everybody, somebody hates you at some point <laughs> in the making of the movie. Uh -huh. I just worked with Vince Gilligan, who seems to oh, yeah. have the most peaceful, fun loving set. That really? I've been on in a long time. That was so funny. Your your character in that the the landlord. He was really really great. The nosy neighbor. But oh, the neighbor, right? My yeah, frustration sorry. was so funny that the whole thing is from Aaron Paul's Jesse in the character. It's from his perspective, who's hiding out of sight and only getting what he <sighs> hears. So what you see of me is basically what he perceives while he's hiding in 
out of sight you of can't. the camera. But then you have those great scenes with the guy. You, you invite the guy, <laughs> the drug for dealer, tea. for tea. Yeah. And you're making yeah. him the tea. Meanwhile, he's trying to steal like millions of dollars from this, this other there's, apartment. There's funny stuff that is on camera, but didn't make the cut oh, of sure. the film yeah. because it's, it was an imperative that you see the guy throughout the thing. Yeah. There's bits and pieces of what I thought could have been more and funnier, but it wasn't my movie, you know. <laughs> but yeah, Vince was great to work with. That's great. That's yeah, great. yeah. An interesting story about how you how you uh, got that job, right? Like yeah, that was wild. <laughs> that was the wildest thing. I get a script. They tell me. They just say, "Read the script and tell us what you think." So I read the script. I said, yeah, it's great. Three weeks go by. And they said, come in for uh, an audition. I hadn't read the whole script. I just read the sides. And I said, okay, yeah. And I liked the casting director who I've known for 40 years. Uh, she was saying, look, we're going to do this like we're, we're doing the job. We're do making the movie. And we'll do takes. We'll do some different takes and play with it to see how it goes. You know, it's not a one-off. Um, we'll, we'll give it as much time. It didn't take so much time, but I had the I had the, the relaxation of knowing that we could take time. So the audition went well. Another three weeks go by. I don't I don't hear a thing. So then I get a call and say come to the producer's office to read the script, the whole script. So I go in there, the reception gives me the script and sends me into Vince's office to read the script. I'm looking for cameras, you know, to see if they're observing me reading the script in his office. And the whole writing crew for Better Call Saul is next door. <laughs> And I'm in this office for two and it's it was a it was a dense kind of a script to read, you know, so many um, stage directions and such a dense piece of material. I'm there for two and a half, three hours reading the script. I'm, I never stop looking for cameras to think I'm being observed. So I finish the script and go back to the receptionist. Thank you. That's it. Goodbye. On the way out, I know one of the writers on Better Call Saul. I'd known her since she was a baby in Boston, and now she's an important staff writer, so that was pleasant. And she had me come in and meet the whole writing staff for Better Call Saul, and that was embarrassing. And I leave. Another three weeks go by, and the response I get was, can you bring that shirt that you auditioned with? That's what he was interested in. The shirt that I auditioned with. <laughs> so that was, I got the job, but bring the shirt. <laughs> the shirt is the star. Nice. <laughs> so I brought the shirt and wore the shirt. And it was pleasant every step of the way. You know, great crew. Great cast. That so was out. great. Oh, and also my wife was very ill, deathly ill. And I lived with her in the hospital and in the rehab. And it was a question of take the job or not take the job. But we needed it, not just for the paycheck, but to fulfill my insurance requirements, which we were using, fortunately, at the time that she got very ill. And she was back home, and my sister-in-law came to fill in. But the production company was great enough to fly me in and fly me back out. You know, four times I flew back and forth to Albuquerque. I mean, of course, they saved on per diem and hotel, but most of all, they were accommodating me in a very difficult time. So I have nothing but respect for for Vince and the producers, uh, Ron Johnson, who uh, was a producer on Bugsy and been a great producer on many, many films. 
so it was it was a great time yeah yeah, yeah. Well, wow, Tom, thank you so much for coming by yeah, today. It's yeah, always yeah. fun to talk about myself. Yeah, it's <laughs> great know? talking about you, too. No, but it, it is the stories that every every production leaves you with, you know? Something about every show brings up a story that's uh, fun to recall. That's, that's a great thing about making movies. 